Emily Dickinson is a wonder. The only confirmed image we have of her shows a seemingly frail young girl, hair pulled tightly back, and in her hands holding something loosely, almost fidgeting with something blurred, something we cannot know. If we would have known her in her time, she may unassumingly slip past the threshold of our attention. Maybe we would know someone well-read and quirky, around whom rumors swirl, as she never marries and rarely leaves her home. But in her time, only a few knew her as we do. A microcosm of language and imagination, a force of ingenuity and condensed linguistic power. This photograph is a summary, focused on appearance, but blurred where there's a light cradling of something of infinite curiosity, something just beyond comprehension. You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast, Artist Profile Series, Episode 34. I'm Corey Fry, and I'll be your guest host for today's show. Emily Dickinson was born a middle child to Edward and Emily Norcross Dickinson on December 10th, 1830 in Amherst, Massachusetts. Her father, a lawyer, and her mother, a homemaker and proficient gardener, provided a home life and education dedicated to discipline and care. Emily's writing and life are at least in part characterized by her nearness both in proximity and emotional connection to her family and her sense of place. Though she's often caricatured as a recluse, her early life is full of the social and familial bonds one would expect from her time with domestic duties, baking and gardening, attending school, church activities, reading books, playing the piano, writing letters, and taking walks. It wasn't until later in life that she began to draw away into the seclusion of her family home. After completing her schooling at Amherst Academy, Emily Dickinson attended Mount Holyoke Female Seminary at the age of 16. Her academic pursuits included science, grammar, Latin, history, music, algebra, philosophy, and logic. But amidst the rigor of her studies, like most educational institutions of the time, Mount Holyoke placed a strong emphasis on the responsibility of their students' religious and moral lives. As a wave of religious revivals spread throughout New England, the seminary, too, held revival services that encouraged the students to give their lives to faith. Students were organized into three groups, those who professed faith, those who hoped to, and those who were without hope. Emily, throughout the entirety of her time at Mount Holyoke, remained in the category without hope. To her close friend, Abaya Root, she wrote, There is a great deal of religious interest here, and many are flocking to the Ark of Safety. I have not yet given up to the claims of Christ, but trust I am not entirely thoughtless on so important and serious a subject. 
Later in life, Emily writes in poem number 324, Some keep the Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home. With a bobolink for a choir stir and an orchard for a dome. Some keep the Sabbath in surplus. I just wear my wings. And instead of tolling the bell for church, our little sexton sings. God preaches a noted clergyman, and the sermon is never long. So instead of getting to heaven at last, I'm going all along. After her first year at Mount Holyoke Seminary, Emily did not return. And though she didn't fit neatly into their categories for faith, her dedicated attention toward the divine never ceased. Throughout her earlier years, Emily recognized her love for poetry. But in the years following her time at Mount Holyoke, this love intensified. Though the reasons for her leaving seminary are speculative, we do know that in the next period of her life, as her poetic practice began to expand, Emily was removing herself from social life more and more. As religion had become clearly defined as a dividing line, the nation as a whole was up against a similar polarity as the threat and inevitability of the Civil War bore down upon them. The social pressure to categorize life grew beyond the capacities of past social norms. Now one was not just making decisions about finance and betrothal and vocation, but of hope or hopelessness and north or south. But the breadth and scope of poetry knows no boundaries. In poetry, all of life can be explored, and Emily explores joy, God, custom, love, death. In poetry, subjects were not held at a distance because of the individual's adherence to certain ideas. It could be that Emily's retreat into poetry was a retreat away from the oversimplification of social, political, and religious life. But in the complexities of the heart and mind, the boundlessness of the world was available for exploration. Poem 657 says, I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors, of chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof the gambrels of the sky, of visitors the fairest for occupation this, the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. Between the years 1855 and 1865, Emily hit a creative stride, and by the age of 35 had written over 1,100 poems. The details of her life at this time are hard to piece together. From her poems and correspondence, there are hints of great trauma and romantic connections, but we're left with gaps in the story. Even her poetic life was mostly unknown, but by a few family members and her mentor, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was often trying to persuade Emily to publish. With these few, 
she would share short gifts of poems in letters, but even they were unaware of the artistic scope Emily had undertaken in private. There was for Emily what Susan Howe in her book My Emily Dickinson calls a hesitation. Emily never wholly subscribed to organized religion, to traditional roles and culture, to writing styles. Howe says she built a new poetic form from her fractured sense of being eternally on intellectual borders and audaciously invented a new grammar grounded in humility and hesitation. This wasn't just posthumous speculation. Emily knew that the mental, emotional, and spiritual landscape she inhabited was populated by only those few that dare not disgrace it with overly precise or prescriptive language. Poem 1382 says, in many and reportless places, we feel a joy. Reportless also, but sincere as nature or deity. It comes without a consternation, dissolves the same, but leaves a sumptuous destitution without a name. Profane it by a search we cannot. It has no home nor we who having once inhaled it thereafter roam. One defining characteristic of the style and form of Emily's poems is her willful neglect of standard punctuation. It goes without saying that poetry doesn't abide by the same rules as prose, but commonality in at least the use of punctuation brings a helpful familiarity. It's as if Emily is simultaneously employing the necessities of her craft and also pointing out the arbitrary authority of grammar and its rules. Meticulously placed dashes are one of her notable tools of the trade, but are not mere punctuation, but an assertion. In poems like number 378, Emily deploys a dash at the end of every line. The line's end in poetry is understood to be the space for breath, the meter's end, perhaps the place for a comma or a period, a pause, but this is not enough. Emily doesn't leave a space to speak for itself, but enacts it with a dash, enhances it, demands the breath, enforcing even her own hesitation. Though mostly known for her poetry, Emily Dickinson was also a prolific writer of letters. Over 1,000 letters sent by the poet remain, and scholars believe this is a scant one-tenth of her epistolary output. But it is not just the quantity of letters that is pertinent to understanding the poet. All of her life, she resisted the publication of her poetry— but in the world of correspondence, she was always generous with verse. As if her poems were meant to be a gift, and anything else a kind of exploitation, the letters and the poems were both points of connection. Reducing Emily's social life to that of a hermit discounts the thousands of words she sent into the world as messages of the heart and deep vulnerability. Unwilling to distance language through the proxy of publication, 
She succinctly selected poems that further conveyed the connection she desired through the medium so intertwined with her identity. Her words were not necessarily meant for anyone, but for a specific someone. She left instructions to her sister to destroy any received correspondence after her death. Perhaps a means of privacy, but maybe a means of removing the possibility of overly generalizing her relationship to the congeniality of language. To solidify words as a specificity. Something for someone. Something between people. After Emily's death, her sister Lavinia entered Emily's room to find an entire world. We tend to know most authors by only the facade of their published work. Though this is certainly one real aspect of a writer, we must know about Emily that because her work was left unpublished, this aspect, the one that most of us know her by, was never part of her actual life and history. She talked with publishers, even had her work published without her consent, altered and crammed into forms and language she never intended. But her work, some of which was finished by her standards, never graced the printing press. Lavinia's discovery of her writings yielded scraps of poetry and phrases, works in progress and works she edited and bound into homemade books her posthumous editor Mabel Loomis Todd called fascicles. Within a great deal of her poems are lists of variant words. Words dedicated as far as the stanza may have a plus sign beside or above them that would correspond to one or more words that could potentially replace it. They shouldn't be overlooked. Emily's life coincided with a great list of artists that were setting the stage for early modernism in all forms of art. It may be a stretch to say that she was aware of this, or working toward it, or even cared about it. But as all artists, at least in part, are products of their cultural climate, she was certainly in the movement toward the unstoppable progression of culture. It's important to mention, because of Emily's hesitation, she stopped short of the finished product. Things remain in a sort of limbo. Even this small act of resistance... To commit to merely one word, but needing and demanding the variance to also be listed, is somewhat of a sign of the coming fragmentation of modernism. Is it that much of a stretch to say that cubism's fragmentation, it's saying a portrait of a person is simultaneously about the front and back of the head, is any different from saying this stanza of poetry means both this and this. Among the 1,700 poems left to her sister were fragments of paper, mostly bits of unfolded envelope, with quick bursts of linguistic thought following the curves and creases of the unfolded pocket. Now called her envelope poems, these add a layer of complexity to our understanding of Emily. It's as if she's sketching phrases and words, 
jotting ideas with the composition of the page's objectness in mind. If the envelope's closing flap is open to the left, Emily's margin and justification follows its point. In one example, Emily writes on a torn-off envelope flap that triangles to a point at the bottom, In this short life that only lasts an hour, merely, how much, how little, is within our power. What's astonishing is Emily's sense of place on the page. As if turning the words to objects and allowing them to be sculpted, this poem, this ingenious blurb about life's short funneling to a halt, funnels, visually, physically, on the page to the paper's pointed end. Emily Dickinson died on the 15th of May, 1886. A white coffin held her in a white dress, and six men carried it by her directive, circling her flower garden, through the barn behind their house, and through a field of buttercups to her grave, lined with evergreen boughs in their family plot behind an iron fence. There is an inclination to look at Emily's life as a tragedy, saying, if only she would have found someone who understood her genius, some sort of human accompaniment, companionship, what could she have been? What feats could she have accomplished? But what if Emily's life, in its mystery, its hiddenness, is precisely the thing that gives her work such poignancy? Emily from her bedroom, in her white dress, barely weighing upon her chair, having scarcely left the few acres of her family's plot, rites of death, of love, of wonder, of God, of poetry, of Vesuvius, and lands far off in geography and history, and unknowable places in the depths of humanity. Emily gives us the hope that no matter what our limitations are, the material of the imagination is dense and formidable. It can take you anywhere. It contains the power to create worlds and beasts and dust and bones. It reveals to us that beyond having the understanding and praise of our peers and publishers, we bear the marks of justified creativity and imaginative power in the simple fact of our willingness to, as Emily says, dwell in possibility. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and visit our website at makersandmystics.com to explore our library of over 200 interviews and artist profiles. If you'd like to go deeper into these conversations on art and faith, you can join our creative collective at patreon.com slash makersandmystics or see the show notes of this episode.